We'll all go on and make the place safe. Roads, cities, new sky, new soil, until it's all some kind of Siberia or Northwest Territories, and Mars will be gone and we'll be here and we'll wonder why we feel so empty. Why, when we look at the land, we can never see anything but our own faces. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do it, do it, do do. Oh, yeah, baby, Red Mars. Kim Stanley Robinson. <laughs> As I allude to in the interview later on, Jamie, thanks to uh, the kind of book club that we've started on our Discord channel. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've been reading Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars. And how is it? Truly excellent. It's very cool. Very cool Ooh, I need to I need to delve into that, I think. Yeah, you really do. You really do. So how are you, Matt? How was your week? Uh, we, 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 we're going to get boring if we say how hectic we are. It's been lovely, Jamie. Nah. I've, been, yeah. I've been running lots of showcase gigs for our students, so I've been doing nice. lots of music and live sound engineering, so I mustn't grumble too much. Oh, I like that. And have you mm. been watching The Planets like me? Did you watch it yesterday? Uh, I watched the first one, but I haven't seen the second one yet. No, oh, second but... one's so good. Is, is it as good as the podcast, though? Oh, no. No, good. Cox wishes. I think I am going to work up a um, Brian Cox impression, though. Yeah, it's got to be done. I really like Bob Mortimer's one. Let's say I'll give you till podcast 140 to perfect it. Okay, okay. 140 it is. There we go. Maybe we can do a Brian Cox quote at the beginning. Oh, yes. That would be ace. (laughs) Okay, so Matt, on this day... Yeah? What do you think went on? Was it a Dutch astronomer being born... And I'm gonna ask you to pronounce this one. I think I think it's pronounced Joan Voigt. Joan Voigt. What about the middle names? Well, George Erardus Gushbertus. <laughs> that was the one I didn't want to pronounce. Yeah. Got any Dutch listeners that want to uh, give Matt a percentage on how well he did there? Let us know. We got plenty of the Dutch. June the seventh, eighteen seventy-nine. Born in Java, actually. Uh, and studied in at, in Delft. First started off as a civil engineer, but then got really interested in variable stars. Uh, then he moved to the Leiden Observatory and then to the Cape Observatory in South Africa. Now, the reason why he's really cool, Jamie, and you'll love this, is that uh, just after joining the Royal Astronomical Society in 1917, he mm. was the first person that demonstrated that Proxima was the same distance from the sun as Alpha Centauri. So uh, yes. So and and at the time it was the faintest star there was at the time. So um a a, a bit of a sort of landmark um event really sort of putting it in that same uh, system of stars. Would you say we're talking about legendary status? I'm not sure he's legend. I think Einstein's a legend, and I've not heard of Voigt before. Brian May. (laughs) Brian May, yeah. Freddie Mercury. Um, They even named a planet after him. Did they name a planet after John Deacon? Because if they didn't, they should. The Deacon asteroid. (laughs) I had trouble there. I love it. Well, this, This poor dude, right, he went to Java in 1919 and built an enormous double refracting telescope, 60 centimetre. Yeah. All of that was uh, looking at double stars, parallax, photometry and stuff like that. Uh, but then the Japanese invaded and he was he was imprisoned, got really, really ill uh, and then had to move to Australia to convalesce. Uh, but he eventually returned to The Hague and died in oh. the Netherlands in 1963. He was quite old though, oh. 1963. Well, actually, yeah, I suppose, no, well. actually... In his 80s. Not bad. He lived a life. I'm tipping my cap. Tip the cap to Voigt. We haven't done any space news recently, and we've, we've got an interview, which we haven't done for, for a while, although the interview, yeah. disappointingly, <laughs> cont- <laughs> contains yet another David. This time, absolutely not by design. Um, but, um, yes, we've um, we've got another David for you. Uh, in a We have. We know how you love him. It's a, it's a theme of ours. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy this one. It was it was really fun, wasn't it? It really is brilliant. I, I absolutely 
super enjoyed this interview. Yeah, we are so jealous not to be where they all are and we need to tell you about it. So anyway, that's coming up. But first, should we talk about Starling? Yeah, let's talk about Starling. We've we've alluded it to a now, couple of times on the show. We have alluded to it. We've mentioned it a few times. But our old mate Musk um, is, as you may or may not know, wanting to pump thousands of small satellites into low Earth orbit to give the world free internet. Now, is it going to be free? Before before I say that and get it wrong. No, it's definitely not going to be free. Um, it's definitely going to be... Yeah, no. Because this constellation's going to cost billions upon billions, so someone's got to pay for it. Someone's got to, someone's got to set up a direct They bit. might give it free to areas where they can't get internet, maybe, but then everyone else has yeah. to pay for it. So it's like they've got to find some pretty big commercial I might. Buyers. I might tweet Musk... See if I get a reply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but astronomers are very concerned, Matt, because they want to know if it's going to mess with their night sky viewing. And um, and so here's what Elon had to say when someone was uh, very concerned. He said, there are already 4,900 satellites into orbit, uh, which people notice 0% of the time. Starlink won't be seen by anyone unless looking very carefully and will have 0% impact on advancements in astronomy. We need to move telescopes into orbit anyway. Atmospheric attenuation is terrible. I'm, I'm going to absolutely uh, stop Musk there, because like, not only did he say that, but he also made up... He also tweeted some ridiculous thing. Uh, as I said last week, he, he tweeted mm. that, that, the, that the reason why the ISS was so bright is because they have the lights on, which is totally ridiculous it's because it's reflecting That's it's because it's so well, it's so large it's reflecting the sunlight back down on us now he's saying there's 4900 satellites on orbit which is which is about right most a lot of them of course are in geostationary orbit so don't move so they're just mm. and they're and they're so far out actually they're not that bright uh, even when you could see them um but people notice 0% of the time well i notice satellites far more often than 0% of the time and uh, yeah. and even without a telescope yeah, and and they were they are yeah and if you if you become an astrophotographer then you realize just how many of your frames are ruined by satellites um but you know 4900 satellites yeah but he's talking about putting 12,000 satellites. Then there's like mm. lots of competitors like OneWeb and Amazon and all these people who want to do the same thing. We, we could end up with 10 times the satellites we have now in less than a decade. I actually genuinely think this, this could be a real, real, real problem. Absolutely could. And I'll tell you what, Matt, we had uh, a really good account, Cosmic Penguin. Shout out to Cosmic Penguin. Check them out on Twitter. Um, and he said to Musk, uh, please see if there are any ways to reduce reflected light downwards from the latter later branches of Starlink satellites uh, as they seem to be more shiny, higher albedo than others. Maybe some coatings slash extra mirrors would help. Thanks. And Musk got straight on and replied. Fair play to him. He said, agreed. Sent a note to Starlink team last week uh, specifically regarding albedo reduction. We'll get better sense of value of this when satellites have raised orbits and arrays are tracking to sun. So I think it's nice that he can engage uh, with the public and admit when he's potentially a bit wrong and try and fix it. That's good, isn't it? It's sort of good, but let, let, let's let face it, uh, it'd be really interesting to see exactly how this pans out. The, 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 the thing is, all these um, organisations now are a bit concerned mm. that this happened in the first place, that there was that the companies aren't thinking, you know, this sounds like an afterthought now, doesn't it? And it is like, well, hang on a yeah. second. This is pollution, light pollution, that that affects everyone and you cannot hide from it. It's not like pollution that that, mm. that is in, you know, you've messed up a city or something. You can go somewhere else or go to a And let's not even talk about the space junk, Matt. Well Potential well, space Well, there's junk. a potential space junk issue that is is quite bad. It's quite bad. Uh, but mm. but it's more it, it is more the fact that it has a, a, an impact. And then so the, the International Dark Sky Association were worried, and this is what Amanda Gormley had to say. 
Uh, she said, what we are really concerned about is the rapid increase of these satellites, which could fundamentally change the way we experience the night sky. That The satellites mm. could disrupt nocturnal animals, including migratory birds that use the night sky to navigate. We just don't understand. Oh, no yeah, way. exactly. We don't understand exactly how this will deeply impact those animals. Uh, and then other... I didn't even think Yeah, about exactly. That. And then other astronomy organisations waded in. You had the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope that said 0.01% of the telescope's pixels will be affected by Starlink satellites. Uh, but it will be more of a nuisance rather than a real problem. So it's a nuisance. But then they, they agreed in the, on this thing that if, if you're using telescopes and you need longer exposures, then you're going to have to chuck away mm. loads of your data uh, because of all these satellites going over the top. A yeah, Dutch astrophysicist called Kees Basser said that he was going to estimate how many satellites you could see at any one time. And so he's saying only after the first 1,600 satellites have been launched, and bearing in mind Musk is talking about 12,000, wasn't it, uh, in total at the end, 1,600 satellites, there will be 84 satellites visible at any time, of which 15 would be easily visible, especially in the summer months. Uh, And uh, you see them more at uh, sunset and sunrise. Uh, And and when all 12,000 are up, that will will mean that there will be 70 and 100 satellites visible from any point of the sky for much of the night. So... God, that is nuts. Yeah, I mean, and and here's another thing that I'd not thought about is there's a there's the added radio interference from the satellites that actually could interfere with radio telescopes as well. You're sort of setting up a radio radio curtain around the world as well as a light curtain around the world. Um, so it seems like they haven't been giving it as much thought as they should. No. And and in, if if you're not persuaded by this argument, Jamie, here is Angel R. Lopez Sanchez, a Spanish-Australian astrophysicist, who in his blog, and I'm going to read it out in full because I think this is just as it's go. about as good a, a, a as way as you could say. He says, in 20 years or so, the children of our world might see the sky as an orange glow where hundreds of bright spots are continuously moving, losing forever the real beauty of the night sky, and they will not be able to escape from this pollution. It does not matter where you are on Earth, far or near cities, or if you're lost in a desert in the middle of the ocean or an astronomical observatory. There could be dozens or hundreds of satellites moving through the sky almost at any moment. Goodbye to the romanticism of astronomy and identifying the constellations in the sky. Goodbye to a society and young people marvelling at the beauty of a dark sky full of stars. They might get the best internet connection, but they will be losing what once it made us dream with the star. Wow. Absolutely couldn't have said it better. Let that be a warning to you all. Yeah. That's crazy, isn't it? Really. Are you listening, Musk? Talking of radio telescopes, etc., Jamie. Oh, yeah. I've been thinking about... We had... What have I told you, Matt, about oh, thinking? No. I've got to stop it. It's going to get you in trouble again. <laughs> so I've, I was thinking about... Ethan Siegel and the fact that he came on the show the day before the black hole picture came out, and that's right. We thought we all thought it was going to be the black hole at the centre of our galaxy, Sagittarius A, yeah. that was going to be um, photographed. But mm-hmm. that has turned out to be very, very difficult, and I'll get onto why in a second. But um, the people at Alma or the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array in Chile have finally spotted the faintly glowing accretion disk that that uh, orbits the black hole, and they've released their research oh, in wow. June the sixth copy of Nature, and the head of this research, Elena Muchikova, um, from the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. She says she was very surprised that we actually saw it. So the supermassive black hole at the centre of the solar system, four million solar masses. Uh, and because it's an underfed black hole, I, there's not much material around it for it to actually feed on. It just doesn't mm. have enough food to glow as brightly as, say, the, the, the one in the, that we actually did photograph in M87. Right is one of the reasons why the Event Horizon Telescope didn't actually capture a photo of the Sagittarius A. 
before scientists have been concentrating on really hot gases at 10 million degrees Kelvin that emit mm. very, very high-energy X-rays. They were looking at it, and it never actually formed a neat orbiting disk. So this is gas that's coming in from uh, different directions that's getting superheated up by the um, tidal forces, etc. But it isn't part of the accretion disk. So uh, Merchikova and her colleagues, they focused on cooler gas at 10,000 degrees Kelvin. They managed to photograph the accretion disk and what's amazing about it is that one half of it's blue and one half of it's red in these photos because oh, well, one half's red shifted and one half's blue shifted it's red shifted as the as it spins away from earth and blue shifted as it spins towards earth and so 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 they've actually got a spinning accretion disk photo of this spinning accretion disk can um, we put that up on instagram please yeah. before the day is yeah out. no absolutely uh well done well done to them well, congratulations. I think that's absolutely epic. God, humans are good. From that, they've managed to estimate the disk's mass. So I'm actually amazed, accretion disk, bearing in mind, right, that this the, the, the supermassive black hole is 4 million solar masses, right? So this is one big thing. Like, when I say big, I mean massive. Mm. The accretion disk is only between somewhere between 0.01% of the mass of the sun. It's not that much matter. Mm. And it's only eating, the black hole's only eating the, the equivalent mass of, say, the dwarf planet Ceres. God, it really is underfed. Yeah, it really is underfed. Poor guy. Matt, do you think there are 10,000 people named Kelvin? <laughs> uh, at least 10,000. If you know a Kelvin, or if, if you are a Kelvin, please uh, let us know. Well, We'll give you a shout out. I live in the village with Kelvin Long, who uh, no who designs interstellar spacecraft. Oh, that is epic. Yeah, salutes. Well, if you're a Kelvin, uh, maybe we'll send you an interplanetary podcast mug. How about uh, that? But you have to show us your passport. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jamie, I, I spotted one really exciting mission for SpaceX coming up. Let's not. All, let's Go all on. be down on SpaceX. So NASA are going to be launching a. Deep Space Timekeeper, or ah, the yes. Deep Space Atomic Clock, the DSAC. Yeah, this this one's really cool. It's a little tiny satellite, so it's it's roughly thirty by thirty by thirty centimeters. So if you get your ruler mm. and make a cube from your, your standard school ruler, it's about that size. It weighs about sixteen kilograms, but the clock's so accurate it only loses one second every nine million years. <laughs> Uh, and, and unlike your watch that uses quartz, you know, you pass a bit of electricity and it makes quartz yeah. crystals vibrate. Atomic clocks use um, the frequency of light that's emitted by um, specific atoms. And in this case, the atoms are mercury atoms. And the mercury atoms are sort of contained in these specially designed um, magnetically shielded containers. And apparently there's, there's less mercury in this device than there are in two cans of tuna, if you're interested. And uh, oh, yeah. I am interested. I love tuna. But the advantage of this, and it's going to be a really important thing, this, in, in, in uh, I guess even in interstellar travel or um, interplanetary, certainly in the solar system, is at the moment spacecraft, so say you've got Juno or Cassini, the only way they know where they are is for someone on Earth to send a signal to it and then they then the spacecraft sends the signal back and that time delay is then used to work out where the spacecraft is and then you have to beam the signal back to the spacecraft to tell it where it is and of course this is time consuming and a bit annoying uh yeah but if if it's got an accurate clock on board you can just beam it a signal and then it it can compare that signal to its own clock and then know exactly where it is, and and the spacecraft can do the that rest. Is, so it, that is genius, so it's a, it's a it? major advance, isn't it? So this thing's going to be flying for a year as a test uh, article, but it's it's clearly a, 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 a really cool piece of tech. Got to hand it to them. Oh, majorly. So I did there. Now, Jamie, we've been talking Love about we we have we've been talking about space flight and people going into space. 
commercial space. We have. Well, there's there's one company that we don't really talk We have mentioned them a few times, and that's Worldview. We, we certainly mentioned them when they did their taking a KFC into space. I remember, yes. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, who could forget that? <laughs> so they, they have a thing called a Stratolite, which isn't the human version of their endeavours. So Stratolite mm. has just finished a 16-day mission, and it's this huge balloon that sails the stratosphere, but using this strange effect of being able to, like a ship steering in the wind, it can steer in the stratospheric wind and stay in one place. It's a special type of, uh, you know, station keeping, um, which makes wow. which makes it loads better than, you know, satellites because it's, it's nearer. So for Earth observation and, uh, you know, looking at farming and remote sensing and weather and all those kind of things, it could be a major, major player and not have to go into space. You don't have to worry about space junk and you can reuse it quite easily and use it for different types of experiments, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Wow, that's got potential, isn't yes. it? Yes, and I didn't realise how cool the founders of Worldview are. So they're two um, veterans of Biosphere 2, which is that two-year Mars analogue, uh, Jane, Jane yeah. Pointer and Tabor McCallum. Also, the genius that is Dr. Alan Stern of the New Horizons Pluto mission and Scott Kelly's astronaut brother, Mark Kelly. When I say brother, twin brother, Mark Kelly. So, yeah, yeah, they are the people behind it. And, of course, they have this Voyager human spaceflight experience that uh, goes up. So they they fly about 30 kilometres up. Which is pretty high, but it's of course it's not really space, uh, but it's high enough so that you can have this very very long flight, a sort of five hour flight, and see the curvature of the Earth and the blackness of space. So it's in the stratosphere, so you can see the thin blue line beneath you, and uh, yeah, you, you can have a bar on there, and you can communicate, you can phone your mates down on the Earth, and you know it sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? You mean, are you saying I could have a beer about 30 kilometres up? Yeah, in the comfort of a nice balloon. And it'll only cost you... I'm not great with heights. It'll only cost you 75 grand in dollars. Is that it? $75,000. It's not bad, is it? Shout out to our patrons. You can still join. (laughs) (laughs) Before we just go on on to our brilliant interview, Jamie, we should just quickly... Uh, note that China have just launched a rocket from a ship in the Yellow Sea, the sea between China Whoa. and Korea, I believe. Yeah, a long, mar- Go China. Yeah, a long March 11, uh, multiple satellites into orbit, a solid propellant rocket from the sea. Well, good work, China. Well, it, it's, we love Well, that. we were talking, weren't we, about how China has to spray all its citizens with rocket parts because it sort of <laughs> it right. launches and they just it's like oh yeah a bit of the rocket casing hit this town so what but yeah actually doing it in sea allows them to get to uh, latitudes and inclinations that they can't get to otherwise so that's a bit of a big one mm. and shout out sh- that is big. shout out to ESA the ESA space transportation who are doing a hashtag rocket week this week um Yes, we absolutely need to big this up. Here we yeah, go. Yeah, so get on social media and follow hashtag Rocket Week because they are uh, giving out tons and tons of information about all the um, rockets on the ESA logbook. So your yeah, Ariane five, I mean, Ariane six. If you're not, if you're not following hashtag Rocket Week. What are you what doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? So check it all out. You know what I mean? Check it all out, and it's a good time to go back to what, our. What are you square? I think they are a bit square. It. it it's a good time to go out and check out our interview with Giorgio Tomino on Podcast Fifty Eight, and all the people that Absolutely. and all the people that I met at CSG on Podcast Ninety, our special about the European spaceport, and that's people like Stefano uh, Bianchi, absolutely. the Vega program manager. So yes, I'd like to also big up our mate Julio as well. Just saying, yeah. Julio, a prayer, patron and god, genius. He is a god. I tell you what. I might start praying to him to see if stuff changes. <laughs> well, in my I life. do have a little shrine to Julio in my in my. Uh, do yeah, you little tiny Julio, hardworking Julio? I call him. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay, so uh, Mac, before we start the interview, yeah. uh, can you tell us who the interview is with? Caitlin McShay and 
yeah. David Krakauer. And uh-huh. they are from the Santa Fe Institute. They have a very cool named festival called the Interplanetary... What's it called? The Interplanetary what? The Interplanetary Festival, isn't it? Yeah, it is the Interplanetary Festival. There we go. Well, they definitely owe us some royalties, but we'll, we'll, we'll let that go. Yeah, they, they even have a, a .org in there, interplanetaryfestival.org. We're so on fleek. Here is that said interview. Here we go. Enjoy. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So we are joined by David Krakauer and Caitlin McShay of the Santa Fe Institute. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about the Santa Fe Institute? Yeah. So um, the Santa Fe Institute is a research institute in the mountains in New Mexico. We're just over seven and a half thousand feet elevation. And we were founded by a group of Nobel laureates in the 1980s to essentially apply rigorous mathematical and computational techniques to the complex world. And the complex world is essentially the adaptive world. So not the abiotic physical universe, not engineered devices, although that increasingly is looking more biological but to networks of adaptive agents. And so that could be neurons in your brain, that could be ants, that could be humans in an economy. Um, And so in other words, the world that we live in, which has hitherto escaped or eluded rigorous mathematical treatment um, with a view to creating theories of the generality that we've become accustomed to in mathematical physics. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a hell of an intro. I love that. So this festival that you guys have got coming up, firstly, we want to know all about it. We want to know how people can get involved. If there's anyone in the area that doesn't know about it, what can they expect? We know that you've got some great people coming down to speak as well as some live music. Is that right? That's right. right. Um, yeah, so the festival is uh, very good sneaking up. It's June 14th, 15th, and 16th in Santa Fe. So any of you listeners who happen to be in the desert, stay tuned. Um, it is in the Santa Fe Rail Yard Park, and what it does is take this perspective on systems and present it to a broad audience by asking the question what it might take to become an interplanetary society and um, kind of looking at the systems at the planetary scale all the way at the top in transactions and economies, all the way at the bottom in like metabolic transactions within individual cells and everything in between. Um, but that's kind of a little scary, I think. And so we asked, well, okay, what would it, what would it take to make um, a garden? What would it take to make an autonomous ecosystem on Mars? What would it take to safely deliver a human being to a planet we've yet to discover that might be viable? And um, if that gets too scary, don't worry, because it's followed by a live concert and some immersive technology and some um, really relevant and classic sci-fi films that prove to be all too poignant I was going to say, we'll have to ask Mac Damon what his thoughts are. But he's only good at growing potatoes, is that right? <laughs> We've not asked Mac Damon what his thoughts are. He was not invited. <laughs> That's fantastic. So this isn't the first time that the festival has run. So what was it like in previous years? Right. So this is year two. Um, and so we plan the festivals out by code name into the future. And uh, Interplanetary One, uh, code name Genesis, ran last year. And... You know, it was the first year that we did it, and we have about 5,000 people a day. It was great. And um, as as you'll hear from Caitlin, just intermixing panels that were made up of scientists, policymakers, kind of mavericks of various kinds, with music, with film. um, With a view, I mean, the bigger picture here, right, is what does it take to live on and sustain a planet, what is the science of whole planets? That's what the festival's about, right? And that should extend to the cultures that support these activities and the ways in which humans uh, find meaning in their lives. So that was Festival One Genesis. So it had this sort of feeling of birth. It was very um, experimental. Um, this one, this year, uh, Interplanetary Two, codename Stardust, is much more utopian and a little playful. Um, And I'll let Keaton explain that. But next year, just as a kind of little preview, (laughs) things are going to get a little darker. And Interplanetary 3 is codename Voyager. So 
once the fun's over oh. and you're out there on your own, then what happens? So again, listeners, come to this festival. <laughs> um, well, so I think to the to the point that um, you know there are these panel discussions about these these strange questions, and then there's also the celebration. Um, if the whole festival is about the science of planets. I mean, the reason that I think Stardust is going to be so fun is that it's really a celebration of this planet. If we want to know more about other planets, we might stand to learn more about our own. But really, I mean, personally, I think all the rest of the other planets seem pretty boring in comparison. So um, we, we decided to do this much more fun, hopeful, utopian, as David said, festival. Um, in our initial design of it, the word hedonistic was thrown around quite often. And I think that we've risen to that term this year. Um, we have, we all, we've introduced Yay. alcohol this year. We uh, are working with a, with a local brewer to make an interplanetary nice. ale, um, which hopefully won't be as hoppy as the Indian pale ales of <laughs> prior years. Um, it's not actually traveling to space, so it'll be more delicious, yeah, so, I think. So IPA, of course. In case well, you that's wondered, what that's what our is dream is, isn't it, Matt? To get our own uh, uh, our own beer. Yeah, a Jamie and Matt's IPA that would be uh, sensational. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> sense a collaboration. Yeah. Put a good word in for <laughs> yeah. us. Collaborative potential is emerging. Yeah. Definitely. I was actually going to ask at the end of this interview, uh, how do we get our hands on bottles of uh, interplanetary ale? I mean, even just the labels, that would be absolutely brilliant. Oh, they, well, we can send you we those. We can send actually. you images of the labels pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the shipping rules are. I, I think it's probably easier to send it out than it is That's to bring okay. it in. That's we'll <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll sniff the labels. That's fine. That's great. Um, so I do, um, I do have a question because... I heard you guys just there mention about the questions about what it would take for our human society to to live on another planet. But have you thought about what it would take to live on another moon? Because I know that you guys must have heard our uh, Titan special a couple of weeks ago, where we looked at the second most uh, habitable potential in our solar system being Titan. What do you think about that? It's interesting. So uh, this, it's a slightly different perspective it's funny that you mentioned this. I remember last year um, at the festival we had one of our um, sort of resident writers is Neil Stevenson, who's quite a well-known science fiction writer. And Neil made the point that we can't really comfortably live in the Arctic, um, that efforts to have people overwinter more than once tend to end in disaster because everyone goes nuts. So it's an interesting question, right? The what this festival is doing is something slightly different. Most people fixate on the technology of creating habitable atmospheres, on you know what the energetic requirements are to generate enough power to transport a large mass a large distance. And we're asking a slightly different question, which is, let's say that that was solved. How would a social system of a size of order five to maybe 15 people persist over long periods of time? What are the... Um, physiological, neural consequences of prolonged zero-G exposure. So what kind of economic system um, might that kind of society begin to create? So there are these larger issues about that are planetary questions having to do with long-term persistence, and that's where this festival tends to uh, focus as opposed to things like, well, let's, what can we learn from deep sea experiments where we've had divers living in conditions that to the best of our abilities emulate It's a different set of questions. And that is a much larger set of issues about, for example, one thing that we work on, the entanglements between the economic system and global global ecosystems. So how, how does our economic system align or not align uh, with issues of climate. Um, how do machine learning algorithms integrate with cryptocurrency systems and consequently, you know, issues relating to economic inequality? So we're asking, once a sort of planetary system in some sense has come into existence, what are the sources of instability or stability? Um, and much less emphasis on could we send a small crew, as you say, to an, to an orbiting asteroid or to a moon um, and have them live there for a month to a year without dropping dead um, and then bring them back safely? It's, 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 a, more pl- it's a truly interplanetary uh, 
uh-huh. research project, as opposed to what I consider more a, you know, near space travel project, which has yeah. been, I think, most of the focus, right? Um, I think so. We're asking in some yes, sense I both really more ambitious question and a less ambitious human question. aspects of space travel, and I really love the fact that you're taking this further into sort of more established space. Uh, colonies, I suppose. Uh, we've had quite a few people actually over the years who've done Mars analog missions, you know, these several year analog missions. And it, I, I, I think that's really, really interesting. And there's obviously a huge barrier there. Is Is there a science fiction writer that you feel is able to tell this part of the story really well? Well, I think actually, yeah. I mean, I mentioned Neil Stevenson, I think the, the 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 really thoughtful people on this topic are people like Gene Stanley Robinson, uh, in the Great Mars trilogy. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons why I asked because I'm actually listening to that book right now on Audible, and it really is a fantastic book, isn't it? That trilogy probably comes closest in spirit to the Interplanetary Festival than any other science fiction work I can think of, because what Gene is asking is precisely these big questions, right? What are the characteristic of the charismatic founding population? How do they influence the subsequent evolution of democracy? What kinds of genetic engineering are required to create a stable population of quasi-humans? I mean, that is where we go, right? Um, What are the implications of CRISPR-aided genetic engineering? What about alternative forms of life? We have a very significant research project on the origins of life both carbon-based and digital. Um, At SFI, we basically created the field of artificial life in the 1980s. And that raised all sorts of questions about biosignatures, which are a very weird concept in themselves, if you you think about it, because we shouldn't really be looking for biosignatures, but tech signatures, because we probably won't survive, but our technology will. So what is life ultimately? And so we do a lot of work on the mathematics of, of... life that transcends um, the particular physical materials out of which the life we know is built. And so uh, and we can get into that if you like, but one of our faculty, Seth Lloyd, who spends time between here and MIT, has made a very strong argument that the universe itself could be viewed as sentient uh, in the sense that the universe is a giant quantum computer, which is what he works on. So there are these interesting philosophical questions that when you start thinking about planets, whole planets, you you sort of a little bit uh, overcome some of the more immediate questions about hmm. rocket payload. That is a very good call. And actually, uh, it, it made me smile because I was reading uh, reading your site again, and the very last link was a, a, a link to an article written by Eric Mack titled, Hey, Elon Musk, <laughs> yes, exactly. what about toilet paper on Mars? I think our listeners will Well, right. I mean, it's will, funny. Will I mean, it's, it's exactly right. I mean, all the things that... And again, you mentioned Gene Stanley Robinson. What he does is address... I mean, in his most recent book, actually, uh, whose title I forgot, the basic premise is uh, huge investment in sending a crew to a what appears to be by spectral signature habitable exoplanet only to realize that it's occupied by the most evil virulent microbes that there would be no chance in surviving and coming all the way back with their tails between their legs to try and make the earth work and i think but that's actually the thought experiment we're interested in what you know what is the you can't really think about planets in isolation um and imagine doing biology and you only had one species. I mean, just it wouldn't be biology, right? And so well, our view is to understand planets, you have to have a comparative perspective. And so we know, right, that Mars, I guess the premise is that Mars several billion years ago was covered in an ocean. Um, what happened? Um, we know that our own planet has undergone at least 19 very significant mass extinctions, one of which enabled us to evolve. Right. And um, so there are these bigger questions that we'd like to understand and extend these co- concepts to other planets. I mean, did Mars experience mass extinction? What would that mean? Um, so for the festival itself, the kind of how like on earth do you get over these mind blowing concepts? Because these types of concepts are like slippery fish, aren't they? And I'd 
I wonder, I'm really interested in how you get this across, how, how this translates at a festival level. Well, I think um, the way to kind of code or, or theme the types of conversations that we have, we refer to them as rigorously speculative. And so what we can do is we take the insight that a scientist on the panel, maybe from SFI, maybe a friend of ours from another institution might have on the matter and pair them with a sci-fi author or an investor or a musician or an artist and um, take those perspectives and those experiences and put them together in a really casual, unscripted conversation about what other types of life might be. I mean, so when we talk about origins of life, like David is, that's one thing. But when we're at the festival, we're talking about like the search for life beyond our planet. And that kind of broadens things up in a really fun and inviting and accessible way that we can still kind of pin our imaginations to with our own experiences or with the audience ex experiences too, because of course it's an accessible festival. There's Q and A's and usually the audience provides the best questions. So um, I would say that's, we just remove the, um, the, the staunch necessity that what we talk about has to be correct and say, in fact, well, based on what we know, I think it might be this way. It's really like celebrate, it's like a celebrational hypothesis. <laughs> I mean, just to give you an example of where the science meets really interesting. So most people, I guess you guys have watched Contact, yeah. the film Contact yeah. or, or other films yeah, like yeah. it. So a few years ago, we, some of our faculty wrote a very interesting technical paper, which proved that, and this is an information theoretic paper, so this is the mathematics of that evolved in telegraphy, right? And this paper proved that any optimally encoded signal is demonstrably indistinguishable from noise, right? Which is a, a completely counterintuitive insight, which is if I was going to send a message out into space that was very elegantly encoded, for example, it included information about Lie algebras or category theory or, you know, algebraic geometry or photosynthesis or what have you. Um, you can show that if you were very thoughtful about how you encoded that information. Oh, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> no, but that's very weird, right? Because here we are saying there's no evidence of life because all of our best surveys are picking up either noise or physical phenomenon whose provenance we understand. But that actually is expected um, if the information is optimally encoded. So there are these very weird mind-bending insights that aren't really in the public debate. Um, and it certainly doesn't come up when people are talking about SETI, but we think would be worthwhile injecting somehow into the debate. And so these panels will discuss that kind of thing, which is, you know, why haven't we, why is the Fermi paradox a paradox? And that is, why have we not detected life given the age of the universe and given that we're, Earth is relatively young? Um, but that might be one answer. And so those kinds of issues that I think are kind of engaging and surprising are things that we want to get across through drama, right, through science. Super engaging. And actually, um, it's good timing in the UK at the moment because I don't know if, if any of you are watching The Planet uh, by Brian Cox uh, on, on BBC, but it's yesterday... Uh, was all about Mars, and I don't want to get too Mars heavy, but just to see visually um, it was CGI, uh, the fact that Mars used to be like Earth was. It had hydrothermal vents, it had volcanoes, it had oceans, and and you know four kilometer high waterfalls. Uh, it just blows my mind that that it had everything it needed to to host life. Um, and then when me and Matt were talking about Titan, they've actually done experiments where they, they've taken everything, all the elements that are on Titan, and, and they create microorganisms. It's just, it's mind-blowing. And I think this is something that people can relate to. It's but really it's funny that you say this, really because awesome. one of the big kind of, I guess, surprises, I mean, there are two, I would say, very big surprises. I mean, in the last, let's say, decade or so. One was, you know, if the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old, Earth ocean is about 4.4 billion years old and life is probably about 4.1 billion. So it used to be thought that the existence of a planet and an ocean and actually in, in more significantly um, tectonic motion, which is necessary for the appropriate um, gas cycles that support life, um, that life would be late to the stage, right? That once you had the formation of a solar system and a, and a planet, you might have to wait a long time for life to appear. But what we've learned from our N of one example is that actually 
life, however you define it, and that's another big part of this festival, I mean, as I said earlier, what the hell is life? Um, but life, at least what the biologists recognize, that is an open-ended replicator capable of metabolism and evolution, et cetera. Um, those things appeared almost instantaneously on, this, on the timescale of planetary formation, right, of the same order of magnitude. And so it's really intriguing. I mean, our anticipation, consequently, is that life is ubiquitous. And then the question becomes, what isn't? You know, is intelligent life not ubiquitous? Because the big bottleneck in the evolution of life on this planet was not life itself, it was multicellular life. Mm -hmm. And um, that took billions of years, right? So it, it's very interesting that it seems like making life is no harder than making a planet, but making multicellular <laughs> life is, is something else. So there are, the, again, you know, and so what do we expect to find once we can do all of these beautiful spectral signatures of the exoplanets, which is the other major discovery, I'd say, in the last few decades, right? I mean, you guys must follow this. It's just having gone from maybe there's a few other exoplanets to just being every single and solar system. On the evidence and data of our own planet, I think it's probably quite likely that they all harbor life, uh, microbial life. Um, and then the question is, what should we be surprised to encounter? And, mm. um, uh. right, I, and I think the debate will change. I mean, I, I'm wondering what you will broadcast once the day it's announced that we discover the appropriate, you know, chemical signatures for example, uncharacteristically high levels of oxygenation or what have you, um, what happens then? And, and I think we'll very quickly move on to another debate, which will be, but is it intelligent life? And, 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 I, and again, I, so this is again what the festival wants to understand, what should ultimately be surprising to us? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, a few years ago, I got very much into a science fiction writer called Rudy Rucker, yes. and he deals a lot with uh, what you actually define as life. I mean, I, I believe he even goes as far as uh, saying things, even things like rocks have enough complexity to uh, even have consciousness. Mm. And there's a lot of work, isn't there, that's going on and lots of really good work on ideas like this, but it's not quite in the mainstream. And one thing that's brilliant about this festival, it seems, that it's, it's, it's bringing those ideas into a kind of mainstream uh, setting. So I'm absolutely gutted. I can't go. This, it seems so totally up my yeah, street. Yeah, this pains us both. You can stream all of our content. Oh, get in. Oh, come on. This is great. Now we need to ask, yeah, how can people, not only can how people get information about going to the festival, but how can they stream the festival too? So if you want information about our full lineup for this festival and the uh, mission behind the festival and the work that we do at the Santa Fe Institute, you can go to interplanetaryfest.org or santafe.edu. Um, but in, in, the, in the grand mission of kind of global uh, engagement on, on these principles, it wouldn't be too on point if we kept it to ourselves in Santa Fe. So we are broadcasting all of our panel discussions, all of our presentations, and a few concerts that we've been allowed to. Um, so you can see those on the Santa Fe Institute's YouTube site. You can watch them live, given the time difference, simultaneously, or you can wait until the next day and watch them at your leisure. But they're I there. I love that. Perpetuity. Well, we're going to be we're definitely going to be logging in, and, and because me and Matt are big music fans, and we both work in the industry, can you can you? Uh, tickle our fancy for any um, acts that you've got playing? Yeah, well, I think I'm most excited about our Sunday act. So um, in, the, in the theme of Stardust and all of this kind of zeal and celebration for space that we experienced, you know, let's say the first space age and what feels like we're experiencing that again, Stardust to me kind of resonates with this like dawning of the age of Aquarius, disco, 70s fun. Um, so we booked the Family Stone and they'll be playing all of their hits wow. uh, live outdoors under the hopefully shining Santa Fe sun. It's been a little rainy lately. Um, so I'm really excited about the Family Stone. Uh, Sly is no longer a part of the band, but his daughter Fune is the is the lead singer now. So that's kind of fun. And it's Father's Day, so it's just this kind of like confluence of all of these oh, right elements. And actually, Sunday, um, just by coincidence, given our our interest in themes and the and the bands that we booked, it's very kind of Afrofuturist. So we have this uh, eight piece funk band. They're the, the children of the Parliament. They call themselves the Sticky. They're playing. And um, Lindy Vision is playing. They're uh, an Afro-Indian group from Albuquerque. They're three sisters and they're fantastic. So Sunday is kind of accidentally and by intention this way. Um, Saturday is much more like electronica and future. And so we have uh, this guy named that one guy, this guy, that one guy is uh, playing on his invented pipe 
instrument, wow. which is amazing. You just just do a quick Google search. You'll be rewarded. And um, we're that. closing Saturday night with a performance by Itchio, which is a 40-piece electronica percussive situation. Um, it's They're just coming and just kind of creating this primordial vibration for the end of the evening. And then we migrate Blimey. over to this fantastic installation at um, a local museum. So... It's good. It's I'm all good. It's all glad, very good. I'm kind of glad that I'm not uh, tour managing anymore and that that was my job. That sounds like hard work. Thank you. <laughs> well, I tell you what, if you ever if you ever want to book me and Matt, we were both in a band for about two days. Uh, we played a cover of um, uh, Highway to Hell, hell. <laughs> and uh, and we did Somebody by Brian Adams. So if you need us for next year, yeah. just say. I've got to say, given the <laughs> incredibly gloomy, pessimistic tone of next year you you sound perfect you know yeah. you just have we to do highway to hell we still know the chords exactly. it's going to be perfect yeah. we're we're very cheap we just we just want some beer that's all <laughs> yeah okay well, we'll figure that out hey you know what you might be you residents of santa fe might be able to find uh, to help me with this i actually was in santa fe about 4 years ago uh on a road i was on my little road trip across america and i absolutely love santa fe and i i i had a few beers and some amazing mexican food of course mm-hmm. And then I met a guy on the street who sold me a pair of handcuffs that he told me once belonged to Billy the Kid. <laughs> Do you think they're no. real? <laughs> they're not, yeah, so, uh, that's, that's hard to hear. I know. I hate to, I, I hate to break this to you, man. But Billy the Kid is, is one of those things. It's sort of like someone selling you a little bit of a alien's toenail in Roswell. It's yeah. one of those things that there's a little bit too much of it about. And so I think it's a fair bet that Billy the Kid, although it's true he was incarcerated here and, and there's a lot of legend and history about Billy the Kid here. Um, yeah, he told me that they were, the, they were the very same pair of peerless handcuffs that he was arrested. But, I, you know, he did have a big bag with him and it did seem to rattle. So I'm guessing he had more than did, one. Did they cost less than a million dollars? <laughs> Um, I think I think I paid fifty dollars. <laughs> what? <laughs> you could have given me that fifty dollars, Jamie. I'm a, I'm okay. I'm still okay with it. I think it was a great day out. Um, I enjoyed myself, and um, good, good luck, luck to him. To him. <laughs> yes. David, before we go, I've noticed that your accent seems very familiar. Oh yeah, standard New Mexico accent. Yeah, this is a well. This is what happens when you're abducted very young, and yeah. and yeah. raised in Buckingham Palace. No, it was um, the um, I. Uh, I'm a bit weird, actually. I was born in Hawaii. I was raised in Portugal and then England. So I went to university in England and stayed there and for a long time and then came to the United States where my dad was from. So I'm a little bit of a bit of a hybrid. And, wow. and wow. I do everything in my power to kind of keep the vestiges of a civilized accent in a very <laughs> uncivilized country. <laughs> well, you're beating well, you're both, beating both of us. Yeah. It's really weird. We seem to have Davids on quite a lot, and they all have English accents, even when I'm not expecting them to have an English accent. So, yeah, it's it's, it's very odd. I've I've just got no idea what's going right. on. This is something you're doing. Yeah, this. I've no idea what the hell's yeah. going on. <laughs> uh, I'd like to finish with just one final question, and we're associated with the British Interplanetary Society here in London. And Arthur C. Clarke uh, is famous for saying that we'll go to the stars, but not like this. In other words, we won't go to the stars as these fleshy biological things. We'll have to do something else to go out that far. What are your thoughts on that one? Well, you know, I'll give you a, the counter to that. So the um, Caitlin and I just put together the a, a volume which is a volume of sort of essays and transcripts from Interplanetary One, which you can buy online. Uh, <laughs> Interplanetary Transmissions, Volume One. Um, and we open that actually with a quote from uh, the writer William Burroughs, who has a much better quote, I think, than Arthur C. Clarke. And he wrote The Naked Lunch, if you've ever read that or yeah, watched the movie, right? But what he said was, human beings are an artifact designed for space travel. Which I thought was great. I think in wow. the I think in the end, I think you're right. I think we did quite a lot of work with NASA actually on the long term physiological implications of zero G, and you probably know this actually from the data from um, long term bed rest studies or from the ISS, and the accumulation of 
you know, significant amounts of liquid behind the eye leading to, you know, sight loss, you know, 35% muscle wasting. So it's, I think it's true. I mean, we're a gravitational species. We'd be better off sending a dolphin into space, actually, uh, if we could. And there was actually a debate about that. <laughs> neutrally buoyant species uh, or species that live in neutrally buoyant environments are better adapted to space than we are. Um, how you oxygenate the water is not clear. Um, but, yeah, I think some form of genetic engineering, or more likely yet, uh, some simulacrum of us, not the fully post-singularity uploaded version, but some AI that encodes what our values are is more likely to be, um, you know, essentially well, interstellar. Well, David, I, I, uh, I, I'm worried about Blade Runner Pop. Three. <laughs> yes. Yes. Twenty fifty. Oh, you right. You mean when you mean when the replicants come back and claim the Earth? Yeah, I just don't want the Nexus Six to uh, get get aggressive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, rescheduling this little chat. It's been absolutely brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's a subject that's just so up our street, and I'm absolutely gutted we can't go to the festival. We'll try. We'll try and get to the next one. Well, I'll tell you one other thing in closing. As a part of the Interplanetary Festival from day one was the development of a planet-wide interplanetary video game. And, um, and this is in development now. And uh, it's essentially a card game. Think Magic the Gathering, if you like. But where you acquire a deck by actually acquiring real knowledge about complexity science. Um, but then what that deck does is when you feed that deck into software, your avatar is a planet. So everyone has a planetary avatar according to their interests and that, knowledge that, base. And so cool. people who don't come to the festival will be in some sense virtually involved in the interplanetary festival by virtue of the game once that's finished. <laughs> date to be announced. I hope I'm Neptune. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you can be your own it's planet. A, it's a very highbrow <laughs> Pokemon Go. Basically, it is. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the name of your book that's for sale? It's Interplanetary Transmissions, colon, Genesis. Um, but we'll be producing volumes through the Santa Fe Institute Press for each of these festivals. Um, one of many great books produced by there the press go. as of late. So, listeners, please check it out online. There is, uh, if my maths is correct, David, it's 203 days till Christmas. There you go, man. I mean, no, <laughs> but it's, but it's totally, our books are very affordable and even better just because Caitlin won't say, Caitlin illustrated this book. Uh, we built a rocket ship in the car park of the Santa Fe Institute, and which is another conversation. And um, wow. Caitlin basically has a giant HP Lovecraft Cthulhu-style cephalopod devouring it. So if you buy the book, you'll also get the art. To be clear, I oh don't God. think he's devouring it. That's up for your interpretation. He could be admiring it. You can tell that I'm interested <laughs> in Stardust need? and David is interested in Voyager. There we go. All the boxes ticked. Well, guys, we want to thank you again. It's been a pleasure. We should definitely speak again after the event. We want to find out how it went. Uh, good luck with everything. And yeah, people, please check out the website. And good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much. Yeah, live long and prosper. <laughs> the Interplanetary Podcast is... Alive! Jamie, I enjoyed that immensely. Weren't they all just really great? And I'll tell you what, as we were saying, God damn, do we wish we were in Santa Fe next yeah, week. Yeah, I mean, really, that I, that really so up my street, I can't get over it. If you live anywhere near, or even if you don't, and you can get to Santa Fe, please go and check out their website, see how you can get involved. It looks like loads of fun. <laughs> and they've got their own beer. So cool. So, Jamie... Yes. What can uh, people do to get involved with the Interplanetary podcast? It's quite simple. Take yourself to www.interplanetary.org.uk. You'll find our social media. You will find our blog. But more importantly, Matt, you will find how you can help the podcast. Do you want to explain how you do that? Oh, OK. I'll, I'll explain. Uh, yeah, you can go to... Uh, patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. And what are the benefits? Well, the benefits are knowing in your heart that you're helping two hapless space geeks with their little podcast. There's some other benefits like 
T-shirts and mugs and things. Do you things. get any extra content? You get a little bit of extra content, yeah. Every now and then we chuck in a bit of we chuck in a bit of extra interviews that we've done and, and things like that. And also... What about Discord? Yeah, you definitely get to join the Discord and join the conversation. Really, the best thing is to is to join just just to be p- part of our community. We love community. You to be part of our community. And thank you and a shout out to our existing patrons. We literally couldn't do this without you. Absolutely. So, Jamie, what are you doing now? I bought some lollipops from Waitrose and one of them is pina colada flavored, so I'm going to go and have one. Excellent. I am going to go to Weatherspoons and have my supper. Before going back, oh, going back to my fifteen pounds a night Airbnb, I'm living the dream. <laughs> Blimey, that that is a bargain. Oh man, it's such a bargain. It's so. What can you get for fifteen quid a night these days? Eh? It, it's basically a sofa in someone's house, but it turns out that it's actually really good. <laughs> I was dreading That's it, perfect. but but it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Wait, do they know how much you snore yet? They are because I've slept. I've slept about half a meter from you, and it was terrifying. No, I, I, I never snore. I, it can only be because I didn't have my pillow. It felt like shut it. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like the uh, the plates of the earth were moving. Uh, you know? ja- Jamie, I'm so desperate for food now. I'm going to say goodbye to the right, spot buddy. spot cats. Let's say goodbye. Have a good weekend. Lovely spot, See you. you. Bye-bye. Bye.